Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Watch Dogs Bark. My name is Drew. I am your host, and I consider myself a watchdog. What is this? Episode 9. Now, I know I promised to uh, give you information on what the plan is for all of the globalists that want to uh, keep us in check. And I'm going to do that the next time, because this week was a crazy week for news. And I'm going to have to comment on all the big stories, starting with the NFL and DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills. For those of you who don't know, during the Monday night football game, Buffalo Bills against the Cincinnati Bengals, in the first quarter, DeMar Hamlin was tackled in a routine tackle, stood up, and then fell back right on his back and had a cardiac arrest. The game was stopped then. He was uh, administered CPR, and they even had to restart his heart with the defibrillator on the field, and then again later at the hospital, and uh, was put into a medically induced coma, and has been in the ICU of a Cleveland medical center on a ventilator. But he is now awake and has had the breathing tube removed. And the first question, by the way, when he still had the breathing tube in, he was able to write down uh, and communicate back and forth that way until he had the tube removed. The first question he asked the doctors and uh, teammates that were there in his family is, did we win the game or who won the game? One of the two. It's, it's uh, reports either way. But how awesome is that? That's how committed these guys are to their sport. I love that. I think that's the most amazing thing about professional athletes, that they have such a love for their sport that even after they had what they didn't even know was a near-death experience, or actually, I guess his heart did stop and they had to resuscitate him. But even after all that and coming out of a coma after about uh, a medically induced coma after about two or three days, the first question he asks is who won the game? That is just awesome. I think that should be the hashtag for all of 2023. Who won the game? You know, after everything you go through, just stay positive and forward thinking. I think that's awesome. Also, he was put on a conference call by the coach to all the other players and uh, that they they said that there was a lot of people having trouble with their emotions. I would be the same way. I would be quite overcome. Uh, and he said that he loved you boys uh, was one of the big things. So, so awesome that that happened. That's such good news. It was such a horrific event that happened. You know, a lot of medical doctors and stuff are talking about commotio cordis, where people get hit in the chest right over the heart, either, and it's happened in lacrosse, it's happened in soccer, it's happened in all kinds of sports, where that impact happens at just the right moment during the heartbeat that it causes the heart to go into fibrillation which basically means spasms. After all, the heart is not only an organ, it is a muscle. So 
That is what everybody's talking about. I'm not going to speculate yet on what could also have caused his heart to be very vulnerable. I will leave that for another podcast when more information comes out and we see what the real cause was. I know a lot of the doctors are falling on this commotio cordis, and that may be the case. It may be a one in a million freak accident. It wasn't a really aggressive tackle. It seemed like just a normal tackle that happens hundreds of times uh, a game. You know, it wasn't out of the ordinary. It wasn't particularly hard. Uh, The other guy that tackled him didn't put his uh, head in his chest with the helmet. Uh, You know, the shoulder pad wasn't hit right on the heart. So, you know, that may be the cause. And honestly... I have my own suspicions about what may have caused it, but like I said, I'll leave that until another podcast. One thing that I think was a miraculous thing is the way it brought the entire country together. Everyone was praying for Damar Hamlin. And I find it very interesting. Every time we have a major tragedy or something, the nation comes together in prayer for their well-being, and to uh, make the circumstances better. But at the same time, when we're not going through a tragedy or uh, witnessing a tragedy like that, we are trying to tear down religion in this country. We're trying to uh, remove it from schools, from public offices, from government. And yet, when we really get into a tragic situation. What is the first thing that people feel compelled to do? They want to pray. Because when you feel helpless and you can't do anything physically and you're not there, you can always pray. And I can promise you this, prayers are heard and answered. And I think at this time, Damar Hamlin would agree. All right. Now let's transfer from something miraculous and uplifting to something very dark. This case in Idaho, uh, they finally caught the guy. For those of you around the world who haven't heard, I'm sure this is news even big enough for all the world news. But uh, he was caught and his name is Brian Kohlberger. All right, 28 years old, and he is studying for his Ph.D. in criminology at the University of Washington, which is about 10 minutes away from University of Idaho in Moscow. So interesting there. The police have kept quiet until they arraigned him in Idaho, and I want to commend The police officers in Idaho, the FBI, yes, the FBI does do good work too. Most of 99% of the FBI are good people, good, hardworking people with good ethics and, uh, you know, determination to do the right thing. What they did in keeping all that information close to their chest, even when the media and some of the families of the victims and other people are calling them Keystone cops and and uh, small town cops that can't do anything. They're overwhelmed. Well, 
And I sadly was in that chorus of thought. I don't think I ever verbalized it that way, but I did think, man, this is just really bad that this happened in a small town. They don't seem equipped to handle this. Well, guess what? They did. They kept this really close to the chest. So here's the evidence that has come out now to convict Brian Kohlberger in the murder of four students in Moscow, Idaho. All right. Number one, they have a sheath, a knife sheath that was left on the bed of one of the girls. And it had DNA evidence on the button flip for it. All right. Then the FBI worked with the local police in Pennsylvania after Brian Kohlberger arrived with his dad after a cross-country trip. I'll get more detail about that. But then they dug through the trash and found a DNA match for the same DNA that was on that leather knife sheath that they found in the apartments where the four college students were killed. A criminologist in Idaho is convinced that one of the two girls, or maybe both of them, up on the third floor was the intended victim because, number one, their stab wounds seemed more severe, but also she said no one would go up the stairs to the third floor and block their, themselves from getting an escape route, the only escape route from the third floor, and not go up there for a specific purpose. She's 100% sure that one of the two girls in the third floor were the intended victims. All right. On the way, driving back from Idaho, by the way, Brian Kohlberger's father flew into Washington and helped Brian drive the white Hyundai Elantra that the police had an APB out on across country back to Pennsylvania. Well, they were stopped in Indiana for an incidental stop. I don't even know what it was, a headlight out or uh, rolling through a stoplight or something incidental. The FBI had the police officers stop them on purpose to look at Brian Kohlberger's hands to see if there were any injuries. And uh, they weren't clear about yes or no about that, but they said that they got what they were looking for. So all this information and then the DNA match from the trash in Pennsylvania, his parents' trash in Pennsylvania, and the leather sh uh, knife sheath is, I believe, pretty airtight. However, they also have an eyewitness. One of the girls that was down on the first floor heard crying and heard someone say, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. And she opened her bedroom door three times. On the third time, she came face to face with the aggressor, we'll just say, and we'll put a name to it right then. But she described him as in all black with a mask on, about 5'10 or, or taller, and had very bushy eyebrows. So if you look at the picture of Brian Kohlberger, he is about six foot, uh, athletic build, and has very bushy eyebrows with that intense stare that he loves to stare down cameras that are trying to take pictures of him. Also, I think he's probably going for 
uh, an insanity defense of some kind because he's acting insane in jail. He's exposing himself to people. He's staring down people. He's challenging cops to come in his cell so he can cut them. That, my friends, is a person who's really thinks they're smarter than the system. People that have known him for a long time and people that knew him uh, and have met him uh, in gatherings or parties uh, in that area, in the Washington and uh, Idaho area, they describe him as socially awkward, made fun of by girls, obviously, and very intelligent. And I would definitely go along with that. I think he's probably extremely intelligent. And I think he thinks he's smarter than everyone else. Kind of like, what was it, the Zodiac Killer? Uh, he left clues on purpose and, and taunted uh, certain police officers because he thought he was smarter than everyone. I think we're kind of dealing with the same thing with Brian Kohlberger. I think he thinks he's smarter than everyone else. I believe... And also, I've heard from representatives of different news organizations that are out there on permanent assignment until this case is solved, described that the cops there, the police, local, local police and the FBI still have more evidence that will convict Brian Kohlberger to this crime. And they're keeping it close to their chest. Bravo. I mean, honestly, bravo to the local cops there in Idaho, the state police the FBI, any of the, you know, criminal pathologists, everyone is doing an amazing job. I believe once he goes to court, the prosecution, their case will be so airtight, the defense won't be able to find very many ways to wiggle out of it and and get him off on an insanity defense or uh, find anything that will exonerate him. I really don't think that is uh, a big thing that is going to be a problem. So very, very cool information thus far. Also a couple of new things that have come forward in way of evidence is they have determined that Brian Kohlberger's cell phone was pinged by cell towers close to this apartment 12 times in the weeks leading up to the murders. So there is a good chance he was stalking one of the girls, which would make sense. Another thing that's pretty insane, but goes along with a lot of serial killers, if that's what this is a case of, Brian Kohlberger put out a Reddit notice to all violent criminals. He asked them to participate in a survey, and he wanted to know exactly what they were thinking and feeling while they were committing these violent crimes. Now, at first glance, if this case had not arisen, you'd think, wow, that is a person that really wants to understand the criminal mind, really wants to get in their head, and uh, will be a very effective criminologist. So bravo to him. But now we think, hmm, maybe he wanted to have all of those feelings and thoughts for himself while committing these crimes, or I should say, allegedly committing these crimes, right? All right, now moving on to one other thing. Kevin McCarthy finally wins 
the House Speaker job after 15 rounds of votes. And I want to tell you, at the very first one I was watching this, I was kind of along with everyone else. What an insane spectacle this is and how disconnected the Republican Party is and how unified the Democrats are and how we're never going to beat the Democrats if we don't become unified. But then I noticed very good things happened in the holdouts of these 19 to 20 uh, Freedom Caucus members, I guess it is. But even though the left wants you to believe this was a big mess, this, my friends, is what a representative democracy looks like in a republic. The last time multiple votes like this happened was around the time of the Civil War. Gee, what was happening then? Uh, unrest? Um, conflict between parties uh, trying to figure out what they wanted, what was most important, kind of the same thing. And after all of these quote-unquote concessions that McCarthy made, this has returned the House into what it was meant to be and not what Nancy Pelosi turned it into. Uh, no knocking Nancy Pelosi. She ruled with an iron fist and never brought bills to the floor she didn't already have the votes for. But now we can actually have open and honest debates about every bill as it should be. That's how our founding fathers created it. It was a check and balance that they put in that allowed or actually demanded that all bills were debated openly and publicly on the House floor. And that hasn't happened in about two to three years because Nancy Pelosi, once she had all the votes, she didn't allow the other side to even debate or even state an opinion. And that is wrong, in my opinion. I think that all of these things, I used to watch C-SPAN and watch some of the debates happening on the floor. I've become, I guess, kind of a political junkie. I really watch this political wrangling back and forth, almost like a sport. I really do think it's fascinating to watch, and especially this doing 15 different rounds of votes in order to finally get the Speaker of the House. It came down to, uh, on the 14th vote, uh, Lauren Boebert and um, Matt Gates were willing to vote present but not all the other ones, uh, Andy Biggs and all the other ones that were also holding out. And it wasn't until the 15th round at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock my time here in the Mountain Standard Time. Then finally, when Andy Biggs stood up and said, present, and then Bobert said, present, and then Buck said, present, then I knew. Uh, we were going to finally have a speaker. Basically, by voting present, they weren't actually voting for McCarthy, but they weren't standing in his way either because every present lowers the threshold from 218 or the majority down to 216. And that is exactly the number of votes Nancy Pelosi won the House with and the Speaker of the House position two years earlier. Other concessions that were made were any one member of the House can call for a vote to remove the Speaker. 
So that's kind of something that Nancy Pelosi removed. She didn't want anyone to be able to raise an objection and and call for a vote to remove her. So that's a big deal. Also, any major spending bill that is presented must also be accompanied by a plan to cut spending in other areas to offset. In other words, something that Democrats have real trouble with, fiscal responsibility. And when a large bill is presented, you must also allow at least 48 to 72 hours to read the bill. Imagine that. Each congressman or woman will have a chance to read bills before they vote on them. Wow, what a crazy concept, huh? You remember what Nancy Pelosi said back in 2010 when people were asking what is in the ACA or Obamacare. She said, well, we'll have to pass it to find out what's in it. Yeah, not anymore. I mean, just recently, they passed this $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, 4,155 pages, was dropped off to each congressman or woman's office the night before it was supposed to be voted on. So many of our congressmen and women did not even read it before they signed to pass it. That can never happen again. Uh, Here's a, a quick little if I were. If I were a congressman and someone set down a bill on my desk that was 4,155 pages and I was expected to vote on it the next day, I would look the courier right in the eyes and say, you tell the speaker my vote is no. I am not even going to read it. If you are going to drop off a 4,000 plus page bill and expect us to vote on it the very next day, right before the Christmas holiday, I know there's absolute BS contained within. Okay, and now Joe Biden is finally going to visit our southern border. You know, he does have that meeting with the other leaders of North American countries in Mexico City like next week. I'm thinking Joe thought, gosh, it'd probably not look really good to the other leaders if I go to this meeting discussing the issues that are facing uh, the North American continent and South American continent. And I don't know anything about what's happening on our southern border. So, gosh, maybe I should visit the southern border in El Paso. Now, I guarantee you he's not going to see the real border. He's going to have, of course, Secret Service detail, make sure everything's super safe. But I also believe he's not going to sit down with the Border Patrol agents and ask them what they really need because I am pretty sure most of those Border Patrol agents will give them a piece of their mind, as they should. Do you know this is the only time that I can think of that Joe Biden has ever been to the border? Even when he was a senator for 
50 years or whatever, he never went with a delegation or led a delegation down to the southern border to try and see for themselves what is really going on. So, bravo, Mr. President. You should have done this two years ago, but it's about time. And I hope you understand the massive catastrophe you created by reversing all of Trump's border policies that were working. All right, two major news stories that I want to address beyond these uh, that just came around is Iran just hanged two men. One was a karate champion for the country and one worked in a poultry factory. And they were associated with the protests of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old woman that was beaten to death by the morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly. First of all, I want to say my heart and prayers go out to the families of these two men and the other, I think, four that are uh, slated to be hanged. And by the way, when Iran hangs someone, they hang them in the public square from a crane and leave them dangling there for days as a warning to any other detractors. So that's what it's like. To live in a dictatorship. That's what not having freedom is like. That's what it's like to not be able to express yourself freely. These people were imprisoned or being killed for protesting against their government. And again, sadly, there are many who want that type of power and authority to get rid of and censor the opposing opinions of those here in the U.S. Remember, 46% of Gen Z actually want socialism here in America. Well, kids, that's what socialism will bring you. And then in Chicago, a certain school received 470 complaints for teachers grooming students. Now, let me explain to you what grooming is. Grooming is creating friendships with students to create a sexual relationship. Well, what do you think is going to happen when we demoralize and sexualize students as young as five and focus on not how to read and write, but about sexuality and different gender identities and take them to drag shows Then you have these insecure teachers who need validation from their seven-year-olds of their lifestyle choices. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, we've got this this kid in Virginia that brought a loaded gun and shot a uh, teacher. Now, I'm not saying that this is a direct result, but this is the kind of things that happen to the children when they're demoralized and confused and upset. And the education system and school administrators are trying to eliminate things that bring stability and comfort to these children like their families these education these educators are trying to tell the kids that they can't trust their own parents and that they have to be 
comfortable with their uh, new identity only at school and don't tell their parents about it. And then they break down all of the other things in our country that bring stability and support and are, are pillars of strength in our country, like the family, the nuclear family, and religion, and uh, our education system to educate only, not to indoctrinate. If you go back to my second podcast, episode two, you can listen again to the exact words of uh, Yuri Bezmenov, the uh, KGB defector that came here to America that warned what happens when you demoralize an entire generation of people. What can happen? We're seeing it right now. I promise you that things are going to get worse and we're going to see much more incidences of child violence and unrest if this continues. And I told you in the last episode, this was planned. If you liked or didn't like anything that I talked about today, please don't hesitate to write me. Drew at the watchdogsbark.com. Lastly, like I always like to do, I want to end on a positive note. Um, there is a book you need to get, and I'm not going to make a dime for promoting it, but uh, you need to get it anyway. It's called Miracle Morning. It's written by a man by the name of Hal Elrod. There's also a movie that was made about the book, and what I would recommend is watch the movie first and then read the book. This man has endured a couple of what should have been life-ending experiences what he's overcome is absolutely incredible, and he's created this amazing plan to jumpstart every single morning with exercise and visualization and affirmations and journaling and meditation. Through these experiences, he created just this incredibly powerful message for other people that are facing major tragedies, and I think you'll gain a lot by reading it. So, until next time, create an amazing day. <laughs>